I'm Emily, and this is Six Feet of Science, the kids' science podcast that is powered by your curious questions that just can't wait until school is back in session. Every episode, expert explainers tackle the questions that you call in. And the first question we have today has to do with something that's probably on a lot of your all's minds right now, spending so much more time at home, maybe doing school online, and just spending a lot of time with your computers, TVs, and other technology. So here's our first question for the day. Hi, my name is Ainsley, and I'm a fifth grader at Bell Ryan Elementary. My question is, how do people get addicted to TV or other electronics? So to help us answer this question, I've called in a friend, Dr. Steph Gesso, and she's a psychologist, which means that she studies the brain and the way that our brain makes us behave. And she is a professor at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. So she teaches college students psychology, and she's going to help answer this question for us. Hey, Steph. Hi, Emily. So how can someone become addicted to technology? So that is such a good question. And I think bottom line, this probably won't be very satisfying, is we don't know very well, which is true of a lot of addictions. We don't know why certain people are susceptible and others aren't. But I can kind of give a a reasonable explanation as to why people get addicted to things in general, if that's okay. So I think the reason that people become addicted to anything is because we live in a much different environment than we used to. And this is called the mismatch hypothesis. So for most of our ancestors, and these are way distant ancestors, not just our grandparents, but going back hundreds of thousands of years or even millions of years, doing things that activated a part of the brain called the reward pathway, it would have been good or adaptive. So this would have included things like looking for and eating tasty foods, or forming friendships and alliances with other humans or seeking out mates. So these things would have helped individuals to survive and reproduce in that ancestral environment. But today we have the same or at least very similar brains as those distant ancestors, but our environments contain things that wouldn't have been present in their environments, including an abundance of high fat and high calorie foods, which can ultimately make us sick. And this also includes technology like video games, or television, like was mentioned in the, in the question, or internet. And these relatively new inventions, like highly processed foods and video games, they stimulate that reward pathway in the brain much more strongly than anything we could have encountered before modern times. We wouldn't have been able to eat a dozen chocolate cupcakes living on the savanna in Africa 100,000 years ago. They just weren't available. Mm, so the original humans were adapted for a different kind of environment, and, and the humans that we are now, are we're still kind of catching up to this new excessive environment that we have available to us. Exactly. And this is why some people become addicted to certain things, especially younger people who don't have as well-developed of a frontal lobe. Now, when you say the frontal lobe, where is that in the brain? Where is that inside of my head? It's exactly where you'd think it would be. It's in the front. So it's the area (laughs) kind of right behind your forehead. Okay, right behind my forehead. And the frontal lobe is kind of this executive area that helps us to choose which things to do at any given time. That helps me make executive decisions. What do you mean by that? 
just when I decide what to do. So let's say I've already had my dinner and I've eaten my dessert too. And there's another dessert sitting over there. And you, you know that it's maybe not the best thing for you to do is to eat that second dessert. Well, the frontal lobe is the thing that's going to help you decide not to do that. Mm, and so when we're kids, that part of our brain, just like the rest of us, is younger and a little bit less practiced and a little bit, it, it's not as used to saying no. Is that what you mean? Exactly. That's why little kids want what they want immediately and they can have tantrums. But when you get to be, you know, in as teenagers, you don't see teenagers throwing tantrums anymore because they're better able to control their behavior. If their parent tells them, no, you can't have that bag of potato chips, the teenager would might be not happy about it but they can realize that that's okay, whereas a little kid, maybe not so much. And a lot of that has to do with this frontal lobe development. So if that's not particularly well-developed, people might choose things that aren't necessarily the best things to do and be a little bit more impulsive. Gotcha. So we like to throw in some bigger words for kids, some of our older listeners who might want to look some more of this up on their own. Are there any parts of the brain that some of our older kids might want to look up on the internet on their own? Sure. So if they are thinking about that reward pathway in the brain, there are certain parts that are important, like something called the nucleus accumbens. And this is a small part in another part of the brain called the striatum. And it's kind of our motivational engine. When it gets activated, we kind of hone in on things and want to go to them and do whatever that is. So eating the piece of cake or hanging out with friends or playing that video game for a longer period of time. There's also another area called the ventral tegmental area, and this is the area that puts out dopamine. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter, basically just a chemical in the brain. And when we do things that feel good, we have a release of that neurotransmitter called dopamine, and that's what makes us want to do something again. Okay, cool. So if we wanted to look up more, we could look up the nucleus accumbens, dopamine, the ventral, uh, what was that one called? The ventral tegmental area. The ventral tegmental area and the striatum. And if I remember correctly, yes. the striatum is called that because it looks kind of stripy. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. It looks striped. So, you know, a lot of times learning about the brain can seem overwhelming or intimidating, but actually it's not that hard once you start getting into it. Yeah, and you can always start with just a few areas. There are a few that are more important than others. So just look up a few things. You don't need to learn everything about the whole brain at one time. <laughs> that would be pretty difficult. That's a good reminder. Thank you, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you think that we should know before we say goodbye today? Um, addiction in general. We know that it does have a genetic component. That doesn't mean that there's one gene that controls all of addiction, but we do know that it tends to run in families. So if I have aunts and uncles or if my mom and dad has some sort of addiction, that means that I'm more likely to have one. But it doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. And we're still working all of this out. It's very complicated. But it's interesting to know that there's a biological component to this. And with more research, hopefully we can figure it out. And once we figure it out, we can help people stop those addictions that aren't good for them. So to wrap up then... We know that the reason that people get addicted to things like technology is in some ways similar to the reasons that we get addicted to things like chocolate cupcakes and potato chips or other junk <laughs> food or other behaviors um, that may not be good for us. We may do them in excess because the environment we live in today is not like the environment the original 
humans lived in. And so we react a little bit different to all of these excessive things that we have in our world, like chocolate cupcakes um, whenever we want them. Exactly. Thanks as always, Steph. We will call you again when we have more psychology questions. Thanks, Emily. I can't wait. So another question that we got this week is from Michael Ortega, and he wants to know about tectonic plates. So I've invited Meredith Billings from the Education Department at the Omaha Children's Museum to help us out with this question. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with me to talk about this question. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. So this is Michael Ortega, and here is his question about tectonic plates. My name is Michael Ortega. My question is, how were tectonic plates on Earth formed? Yes, may use my name and voice on the show. But first, before we talk about how these things were formed, Meredith, can you tell us what exactly is a tectonic plate? Oh, absolutely. So tectonic plates cover the whole Earth, even underneath the ocean. So a tectonic plate is a huge, weirdly shaped, slow-moving slab of rock. So these plates are made up of the Earth's crust, which is where we live, and the top of the Earth's mantle, which is the layer of Earth just below the crust. So that might be a little bit hard to remember. So I think of a peanut M&M. So the candy shell is kind of like the Earth's crust. The chocolate is like the mantle. And then the peanut is the Earth's core. So what we're talking about is the candy shell on the very top of the chocolate. That part of Earth is what tectonic plates are made out of. But the surface of our planet isn't smooth like that candy. So imagine if you took that M&M and started to crunch up the surface if there were little cracks all over the candy shell. This is what the Earth's crust looked like, where each piece of shell is like a tectonic plate. Oh, so it's kind of like if you were to keep a bag of peanut M&Ms in your pocket all day and the outside of their shells maybe get crushed up by the end of the day. Exactly, exactly, yep. Or kind of like a turtle shell, too. Oh, that's true, yeah. So if you have that pattern, if it were all in different pieces, that would be just like tectonic plates. Okay, so that's what tectonic plates are. And we can think about it like the candy shell on top of the M&M. But how were those pieces formed? So we don't actually know yet. Scientists have been trying to answer this for about 50 years now. Wait, 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 Meredith, you're saying we don't actually know how these plates were formed originally? Why, why, why not? Why don't we know that? So as it happens, it's really hard to study what the Earth was like when the tectonic plates were formed because the original plates aren't around anymore. So what happens is on one side of a tectonic plate, a new edge is being formed from the hot mantle, that's that chocolate part, rising up from under the Earth's surface. This material will then cool down and attach itself to a tectonic plate. So it will keep getting a new edge. So it kind of sounds like the tectonic plate is growing. But on the other side of the tectonic plate, 
the other edge is being destroyed. So you have one side that keeps getting bigger, but then the other side keeps getting smaller. So that destroyed edge is getting pulled back into the mantle in big chunks. Oh, wait. So when you say the, the mantle, is that the yes, chocolate? Exactly right. That's the chocolate part of our M&M. Hmm. Okay. So one part of it's being destroyed while the other end of it is being created. Now, how does that happen? What does that movement look like? Well, it makes me think sort of like a Ferris wheel. So let's say that you are magma. You are a piece of the mantle, the chocolate part of our M&M. And so you're going to get on a Ferris wheel. So you'll hop on at the bottom and then you'll rise up until you get really high. And then you'll be at the Earth's crust. And then you keep moving on the Earth's crust until you start to sink back down again. And then you'll go back into the mantle. So that cycle keeps happening. So you have part of the mantle that goes up, becomes part of your crust, and then goes back down. So what this means for scientists is that we don't know what was at the Earth's surface or who is at the top of our Ferris wheel billions of years ago. Hmm, so it's really hard to know exactly what was going on because you don't know exactly what the material was. And all material acts kind of differently. So that's why it's kind of hard to know what it was doing since we don't know precisely what it was made of. Exactly. But even though we don't know exactly what those materials were when these plates were formed. Meredith, do we have some idea of what was making the movement happen? So this has to do with molecules and density. So molecules are the teeny tiny things that make up everything. So the floor, the sky, the grass, your pets, even you. Density is how close or far apart molecules are. So heat makes molecules farther apart and makes them less dense. The cold squishes all those molecules together and makes them more dense. So basically, when you're on the Ferris wheel, you're in the mantle, which is very, very hot. And so you'll be less dense, and so you'll tend to slow up. Now, when you get to the Earth's crust, it's a lot cooler. So you'll cool down, and then you'll get more dense. So you'll be more likely to sink. So when you're at the Earth's crust, so at the top of the Ferris wheel, you're getting cooled down. And so your molecules are getting closer together, so you're more dense, and then you'll sink back down into the mantle. Okay, so what moves the Ferris wheel has something to do with molecules and density. But mostly when we talk about this Ferris wheel moving and being powered by density, and that's talking about how the plates move and grow, but that's not really how they got started in the first place the cracks in the M&M shell. So, Meredith, do scientists have any idea of what made those first cracks in the shell? 
Well, we don't have an answer, but we do have some pretty cool theories. So theory number one, explosion. So this could have been from volcanoes with magma from the upper part of the mantle, which is the top of that chocolate layer, or from plumes, which are enormous tubes of hot magma shooting out from deep within the mantle. With enough of these eruptions, it would have been enough to form a tectonic plate. A second theory is that there were naturally formed weak spots in the Earth's crust or the Kennedy shell. The last theory that I have for you today is a combination of the two. Other scientists believe that explosions paired with these weak spots in the Earth's crust were able to form the tectonic plates. Well, that makes a lot of sense, Meredith, because if there are these weaker spots, that makes sense that if there's an explosion, that's where something is going to push up through the surface and make cracks along the way. Exactly. Exactly. You really get it. So even though we do have some of these neat theories, teams of scientists are working together to try to figure out a definite answer. But maybe if you grow up to be a geophysicist, even a geologist, maybe you could solve a mystery for us. Okay, so then I have one more question, Meredith, before I let you go. Can you tell us what all those big scientist words actually mean? (laughs) What is a geophysicist? Absolutely. So geo, that part of the word, that refers to anything relating to the planet Earth. And then a geophysicist is somebody who specializes in the science of studying the Earth's physical properties. So how different rocks and natural materials act and respond out in nature. So that's one of the kinds of scientists that could maybe eventually discover what it was made out of and how tectonic plates were formed. Thank you so much to Meredith and thank you, Michael, for your question. Thank you so much for having me. For more information on any sort of science fun facts, feel free to check out OCM.org. So that's OCM.org for Omaha Children's Museum, right? Exactly. Thank you, Meredith. We'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for our show today, but I'm hungry after thinking so hard. So let's call up Cheryl from the Kids' Kitchen and see what she's got cooking for us today. Hello there. Is anyone ready for a snack? We're getting creative in Kitchen ABCs this week and using what we have in our kitchen to make trail mix. Find out the science behind how popcorn pops at the Omaha Children's Museum Facebook page as we make popcorn trail mix. I hope to see you there. I'm Emily, and you've been listening to Six Feet of Science, a kid's show in a time of social distancing, where we take your questions that just can't wait until school's back. If you have a curious question that just can't wait, give me a call and leave a voicemail. The number is 531-299-9331. Grab a parent or an older sibling to help you make the call and leave the voicemail with your name, your question, And be sure to let us know if it's okay to use your name and your voice on the show. Oh, and if there's a special school teacher you want us to reach out to, you can let us know that too. 
We do owe a big thanks to the Omaha Children's Museum for their collaboration on this podcast as well as Omaha Public Schools. We feature music on this podcast from Colin Smith, The Bed Trio, and Culture House. That's culture with an X. We have links to those artists on our webpage, which you can find on kios.org. You can also find this podcast on all the major podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe on those platforms and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. Be sure to check back next week for more of Six Feet of Science.